Welcome to The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling. Every week, I speak with women who are entrepreneurs, leaders, creators, and most of all, change makers. I believe that by sharing our mutual stories, we can inspire each other to unlock our own potential. Hi, my name is Eva Barboni. I am the founder and CEO of Atalanta, which is a social enterprise focused on advancing women's leadership. Eva Barboni worked on various political campaigns straight out of university before one day her sister asked her what her dream job would be. Eva's answer was that she'd like to own her own consulting agency to help women candidates around the globe get elected. And she set out to create just that. Before we go to our conversation, let's hear from our partners. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can support you. Eva, it's such a pleasure having you on The Brand is Female, and I have to get used to calling you Eva because I pronounce my name Ava, so just a bit of an adjustment, but I am sensitive to the right pronunciation for our name, Uh, so welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having me. First off, I'd like to ask you, um, and this is always my first question to guests on the show, so uh, you have your own company called Atlanta now. Did you, uh, and, and working in uh, women's leadership, uh, in the political sector um, uh, as well, is that a career that you could have imagined for yourself and, and for yourself and growing up? What did you think you would actually do uh, later in life? Well, I think I always had an interest in politics. I don't know if I necessarily kind of saw myself uh, working in politics as a child, but one of my kind of best friends growing up reminded me recently that um, when uh, when Bill Clinton got reelected, which was 1996, I was 12 years old, that I called her up very excited as a 12 year old at like 10 o'clock at night um, to talk about the fact that the president had been reelected. And she said, no, I thought that was a little bit weird at the time, but now that I see what you're doing, it makes perfect sense. Um, So I guess it was always something that I was interested in. Um, And I grew up in a family that was kind of not necessarily political, but very kind of academic, like to have a good debate over issues. Um, And so it was always kind of, you know, an atmosphere where that that was encouraged. Um, And then when I went to school, I decided to, or to college, I decided to focus on political science Um, And actually, after my freshman year, um, it was during another kind of presidential election cycle um, at that point in the 2003-2004 campaign. Um, And I decided to leave school after my freshman year, kind of much to the disappointment of my father at the time, um, who, (laughs) you know, has a PhD and kind of always expected us to kind of be very academic. Um, and I decided to leave school um, for at least six months to go and work on a presidential campaign. Um, and kind of from that moment on, I knew that's what I wanted to do. That was going to be my focus. So I probably knew it kind of subconsciously before I knew it consciously, but um, it was always something that interests me. Did you go back and finish school or was that the start of your career and you kind of <laughs> stuck with that? 
Um, definitely to my father's relief, um, the campaign that I was on, uh, which was for a candidate named Howard Dean, um, mm -hmm. who, when I joined the campaign, was kind of this, you know, no hope candidate from Vermont that no one had ever heard of, um, and kind of quickly, certainly not personally taking credit for this, but over the course of my being on the campaign, kind of catapulted into front runner status, kind of largely driven by this very grassroots campaign that was using digital tools and tactics really for the first time um, mm. at that level. Um, and so, you know, we were kind of riding high up until right before um, the first caucus in um, in Iowa. And I think most most people kind of remember the campaign if they remember it for kind of the scream that that ended um, Howard Dean's candidacy. But um, he, I think, made a big impact on politics before that. Um, but that mm -hmm. after that point, when the campaign ended, um, I kind of had decided to take another semester off of school um, because I thought, you know, he might go all the way um, to the White House. But when that didn't happen, um, I, I did a little stint in D.C. Um, working on LGBT uh, rights campaign at the time and then went back to school. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, thankfully decided to go back and finish up. And I know after that you worked for so you, you worked on the, on the campaign, you worked for uh, other agencies as well. And I want to talk about that pivot where you actually decided to start your own company and take all the risks and, and do your own thing, something I'm also familiar with. So tell me a little bit about what prompted you, you know, that journey to making the decision to start your own agency. Yeah, so I um, I kind of quickly after college, as you say, went to work for a couple of other agencies, started with one that was pretty small, um, but had kind of big global ambitions and some interesting projects that we got to work on because of that. So I kind of ended up being the sole outpost of this agency internationally that then focused on campaigns um, in Europe, Middle East and Africa primarily, mm -hmm. um, and then went to join a bit of a larger firm that was you know, more of kind of a campaigns and lobbying firm. Um, much bigger, much more established in a very different culture. And so it gave me kind of an interesting perspective on kind of the two sides of the consulting industry. Um, and it also, I think as I advanced and got more senior, um, I started to look around me a little bit more. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that in my younger years, I didn't really think that much about gender equality as an issue. Um, but mm -hmm. as I got more senior and kind of rose up the ranks in some of these companies, you know, I was looking around me and seeing fewer and fewer women as colleagues and also fewer and fewer women um, that we were working with as clients. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously there are a lot of, you know, massive systemic issues where, why that's the case. Um, and certainly in politics, you know, uh, even if you just look at women's representation of politics and the potential client pool that you could have on that basis, it's still quite small. But even accounting for that fact, we still weren't really having that many women clients. And I was kind of looking around at the industry and thinking, you know, how well is this industry actually serving women? Um, and particularly when you look around at a lot of these companies and they all have leadership that looks very much the same um, and is not very balanced. Um, you know, how well can it really serve women who have very, you know, who have unique challenges that they face 
kind of getting to the top of, of the political industry. Um, so I was kind of looking at whether there might be other agencies that were doing uh, things differently or who had gender equality as a focus. And I kind of found that, you know, there were a lot of charities and philanthropies that had a big focus on this, but then were limited in what they could do in the political space because they couldn't be seen as partisan. And then you had a lot of agencies that, you know, might have a couple of pro bono things here and there, but didn't necessarily kind of structure themselves in a way that would um, enable them to, to serve the needs of women clients. So I basically decided it didn't exist. And so I was going to create it um, and thought, you know, I'd try to approach it from the perspective of, you know, a political campaigner, a kind of professional campaign and consultancy firm, but a firm that's driven by a social mission rather than kind of a charitable um kind of a charitable organization mm. that wanted to do politics. So um, so that was kind of the genesis of the idea. Right. And I, I, I as, as we've discussed before, I, I uh, very much admire your mission and think you're doing great work. Um, and tell me a little bit about the type of work that Atalanta does. And I know you're based in London, UK, but you have clients uh, stateside, you have clients in Europe, in the Middle East. Um, and you've worked on some pretty impressive uh, campaigns, getting uh, candidates elected, a lot of them women. Uh, are you able to talk a little bit about a few of the campaigns that you've been involved with? Sure. Um, so I guess we do a couple of different types of work. One is kind of directly for women candidates or political parties. So, um, you know, ideally we get brought in well before the election cycle, kind of helping, I think, particularly for women who have to be very strategic about their career path, what the right entry point is, kind of building allegiances and networks well before an election even comes up. Um, mm -hmm. So we work with women who are either, you know, in the midst of an election campaign or who are plotting, you know, five, 10, even 15 years out for kind of where they want to be um, and starting to help them lay the groundwork for that, you know, raise their profile, think about their campaign organization when the time comes. Um, and we also do quite a bit of work with political parties that take gender equality seriously. Um, mm -hmm. So even if they happen to be led by a male party leader, you know, if they prioritize um, really finding strong women candidates within their ranks or, you know, reforming their party structure so that they're more um, inclusive in how they operate as a party um, and how they develop policy as well, um, then we work directly with them. Um, and we also do quite a bit of kind of grant funded work that supports um, in a slightly more nonpartisan way. So, for instance, we've done a project for the last uh, year or so that's been focused on working with six different political parties um, in Lebanon and working with them to kind of understand where the openings are to advance gender equality within their party structure um, and to make um you know, to try and advance women's political participation in a in a very challenging context. Um, and we have done similar programs in places like Afghanistan, where we worked with um, first time candidates who, you know, as you can imagine, in Afghanistan, just the bravery that it takes to kind of put yourself forward as a candidate, no matter Definitely. your gender is a pretty kind of big undertaking. And I think particularly for women, um, and we worked with uh, a great organization um, called Mina's List, uh, which had identified 
women candidates across the country um, who wanted to run on a on a women's rights platform, on a gender equality platform. And we helped kind of give them campaign skills really, you know, from from the bottom up, um, which I think in a context like Afghanistan was particularly interesting, um, not just because of the challenges of campaigning there and the security issues, but also the fact that they don't really have political parties. So there's not really a training ground um, for candidates, really, of whether they're men or women. Um, so I think we were able to have a big impact there and kind of building up those campaign skills um, in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Mm. What was um, was the scariest thing when you first considered launching your your own company and, and doing the work that you're doing now? And did I'm sure there was also a lot of people telling you that this was impossible because you literally created a new model, also understanding that the world of politics is is fairly male dominated. Uh, we know it's it's a it's harder for women candidates to um, well to gain to gain access to even being uh, nominated with parties, getting their voices heard, uh, getting their platforms across. And I want to talk about that as well. But for you, at the prospect of launching this this company, what was the scariest part? I think the scariest part for me is um, I've always been very financially cautious in my personal life and I haven't taken a whole lot of like financial risk. Right. And so I think the challenge for me was thinking about like, how am I going to generate new business? You know, what if it fails? You know, how am I going to pay my rent if I fail? So it was very much, I think, financial fear. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the interesting thing for me has been um, the things that I was afraid of have not actually ended up being the challenges. So I was worried about, you know, being able to generate business, you know, whether that was something that I'd be really good at, because I think in my previous firms, I hadn't had to do as much of that myself. Um, and it ended up that, um, I mean, thankfully, I have to give a huge thanks to a couple of clients who kind of took the leap with me at the beginning and, you know, decided they would kind of put their faith in me in, in a startup. Um, but that hasn't ended up being the challenge necessarily kind of winning business. It's been more about kind of how do we build the company? How do we find the right people to deliver on this? How do we, you know, how do we make sure that we're building, you know, a really strong in inclusive organization? Um, so I think the things that I, was afraid of at the beginning were ended up not being real fears and probably things I should have thought about at the beginning, I you know realized later on were the real challenges. So just a couple of years ago, you released a report uh, where you basically analyzed the coverage on social media of various politicians and what the conversations uh, uh, were about for, for each yeah. of them. And you looked at this in, in different markets. And uh, obviously showing the difference between male politicians and female politicians. And I'm curious to know if um, the conclusions of that report surprised you or if it was what you expected. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely we did. Um, I think the report that you're referring to, we did an analysis of uh, social media conversations about men and women leaders um in the uk south africa and chile and we looked at men and women leaders who were actually at the same level so in in the uk mm -hmm. for instance we looked at theresa may who was prime minister at the time 
and the Labour Party leader um, at the time, Jeremy Corbyn. And even kind of when they were at the top of their game, um, you know, leading parties and in one case leading the country, they were kind of treated completely differently on social media and discussed very differently. Um, and we analyzed kind of the conversations, not just around kind of the level of abuse and harassment and kind of overt sexism, but we also looked at kind of gendered conversations. So things like, you know, whether their appearance was talked about, whether their, you know, marital status or family life was talked about. Um, and we found that, you know, across the board in each country that we looked at, women had far more conversation that was focused on things that had very little to do with actually how they were doing the job. So mm. a lot of commentary over, you know, what Theresa May wore or, you know, the sound of her voice, which obviously we hear all the time uh, about women leaders. Um, and, you know, certainly conversations about, in her case, the fact that she didn't have children. So um, there's, uh, it's definitely was something that we expected to see a difference, but the kind of scale of the difference surprised us a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of the, the we also had, as a part of that report, we talked to a lot of, we had some kind of qualitative interviews with women, um, political leaders who'd been kind of through some of the kind of darker side of that social media commentary, even at times escalating to kind of credible threats of violence. And just thinking about kind of and hearing from them about the toll that that has on them on a daily basis and really the lack of support that women get both from their political parties, who I think even in cases where they're trying to do the right thing, really have no clue how to address these kinds of things. Um, and then also with the police, when it escalates to the level of threats, um, there's really just not a support system out there and there's not even the laws have not kept up necessarily with with changes in the way that we communicate and and changes, unfortunately, now and how um, people harass and threaten uh, women political leaders in particular. So. Um, so, yeah, we've done a lot of work on the social media side of things. We've also recently over the last couple of years been doing a lot of work um, with the media. So we do a lot of um, trainings with um, with journalists who particularly in the lead up to election periods. Um, so we did this in Afghanistan as a, actually a follow on to the project where we worked with the political leaders. Um, and we've recently done this in Georgia as well, um, the country rather than the state. Um, <laughs> and really kind of working with the media to help them kind of understand some of the, um, the unconscious bias that slips into yeah. reporting about women as well. Um, and also, you know, again, when things escalate to the level of threats or violence against women politicians, how to report on that in a way that's not kind of fueling the flames or actually incentivizing um, further behavior. So, um, so we've been trying to do a lot more both on the social media side and the traditional media side. I also want to ask you, where does your interest, so we know you've been uh, interested in, in politics since an early age, given your um, your fascination or your, your interest in, in, uh, in Clinton. Um, where does your, uh, you know, passion for defending women's rights and advancing women's rights come from, do you think? Is it something that was talked about, you know, what your family growing up are are there role models that maybe instill this in you? Uh, what do you think it is? 
Um, I definitely think it probably was something that, that in a way influenced me from an early age. Um, my mom, uh, was definitely outspoken on this topic. She was she was not political at all. She was an artist, um, but it was definitely something that, um, and and really my father as well. It was never a question that women were equal to men, and there was never a question about um, you know women being able to pursue any type of leadership um, that they wanted to pursue. So I think. In that way, it was definitely something that was instilled in me from an early age. Um, but I think it was a little bit of, in terms of deciding to do it professionally, it was a little bit of a kind of realization. And, you know, both seeing, as I said, kind of the dwindling number of women around me. And then also, we're like, I think when you're, you know, when you come up in campaigning, it's one of those environments that, you know, it's a bit of a boys mm -hmm. club. And I think for many women and myself included, you know, when I was in my twenties, it was kind of like, well, I'm one of the guys, right. like, you know, and there would occasionally be things that would irritate me when like, for instance, particularly when we were working in actually really anywhere, but I think so, so certain countries that stood out more than, um, than others where, you know, a male colleague and I would walk into a room and say the exact same thing. And if I said it, the client didn't take yeah. notice. And if my colleague said it, you know, they immediately agreed with it. And I think when I was younger, I probably dismissed more of that as just, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm younger, I haven't been doing this yeah. as long or something like that. And then when I got older, I started realizing, well, hang it's on a minute. Age I actually anymore. have more. Yeah, <laughs> it's not age anymore. I actually know more about this than the male colleague you're deferring to. And so I probably like, I probably, when I was younger, didn't think that it impacted mm -hmm. me that much. It was kind of like, it was this thing that was important in society, but like, doesn't really affect yeah. me. Um, and then I think as I got older, I realized, well, actually it does. Um, and actually I have a skill set where I can try and do something about it. Um, and, you know, I think it also happened in a period of my career where, you know, when I was Kind of starting out in my career, the excitement of being on the campaigns was enough. And it was enough of a driver uh, for me to be interested in the job because I was, you know, learning new things and it was exciting and I was always going to new contexts. And I think, again, as I got a bit older, I was thinking, okay, you know, I've developed this skill set, but I'm not necessarily always using it to, you know, to drive an issue that I care mm -hmm. about. You know, I, I've certainly liked a lot of my clients. I was happy to see them elected, but I didn't necessarily feel like I was taking the skills I had developed and really using them to make an impact. And so I think all those things kind of converged around the same time where I realized that it was time for me to kind of make a change in, in my mm -hmm. career. So what has been uh, what you would call kind of the, um, the, the ultimate silver lining or the thing that brings you the most satisfaction or fulfillment since having started your own organization? Um, I think definitely, you know, seeing women that we've worked with and helped, you know, seeing them win elections, certainly there's, there's no feeling like that. Um, still, you know, I get a huge amount of satisfaction around it from them and seeing them succeed and 
I'm admittedly also a competitive mm -hmm. person and I like to win elections. Um, <laughs> but I, it always helps. I think probably most people who get into campaigns are, you know, attracted as I am by the fact that there's a clear moment in time where you know if you've succeeded or mm -hmm. lost. Um, whereas I think in a lot of professions, there's not that kind of clear benchmark. Um, so I think that's satisfying. But the thing that I didn't expect to be as satisfying has been kind of the team building aspect of it and kind of seeing, um, I think one of the, um, one of the people who's, who's been on the team for maybe four or five months now, uh, we had a check-in recently and they said, you know, I've learned more in this job in this space of time than any other job I've done. And I think that that fulfillment of seeing like people grow and build skills and the team really come together, particularly at a time when like the entire world seems to be falling yes. apart and, you know, everybody's working from home and it's all a bit, you know, a bit strange in terms of kind of running a company in this period. Um, but seeing people kind of grow and develop skills has probably been the most fulfilling mm -hmm. thing for me beyond kind of the client impact. This season of our podcast is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners that can provide education, financing, mentoring, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, or mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. And I want to talk about, um, without discussing your, your personal life specifically, but um, it, being an entrepreneur, running your own business, and obviously in the, the type of industry that you work in, is demanding it's the type of work that you could be doing 24 7. um we often say i read a quote recently that i quite enjoyed entrepreneurs are willing to work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week and <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you keep sane and grounded uh, amidst um you know it, now there's even more chaos in our world but amidst uh, such a, a busy uh, professional life and uh, all the projects that you're involved with yeah, I think that's, um, you know, I've always been a bit of a workaholic, but I think until, and and that was one of the considerations when I was starting my company, it was like, okay, I'm not afraid to work hard, but I did not know what that was like until, you know, I started my own company. I feel like, you know, this last year has felt like the last two weeks of a campaign period, but just repeated one after another. Um, so it's been... I think that, you know, it, it hasn't been a problem necessarily because it's been fulfilling and I feel like we're doing really good work. Um, but I think the way that I've stayed sane has definitely been, I have, I have a great partner who understands that, you know, I'm married to my job and, you know, he's, um, he's been great about, you know, making sure that I'm fed and like doing the grocery shopping and, you know, all of those kinds of things that, you know, I kind of recognize how lucky I am because um, I think in a lot of relationships and, and frankly, in a lot of the, the women whose campaigns we support, 
you know, if you don't have support at home, it's almost impossible to do this mm -hmm. kind of work, particularly if you have a family, um, which, which I don't. But um, I think having that support from my partner and then also um, my sister, who's also an entrepreneur and started at, around the same time, kind of thinking about starting mm -hmm. her own business um, in a very different industry. It's been really um, kind of helpful to have that sounding board. And even though we're in completely different industries, kind of being able to have that person that you can either, you know, call up and vent to or say, you know, I'm coming across this challenge. How did you handle it? Um, has been a massive help during this period. Mm -hmm. And your sister will mention was just on the podcast as well. So for anyone curious about her <laughs> journey, there's there's a, an episode dedicated to it. Um, I want to ask you what your hope for women is in 2020. And, you know, with without getting political, specifically U.S. elections are just uh, coming up. There's huge stakes um, uh, or, or huge things at stake with uh, with a specific election, and you're 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 involved with campaigns that are well beyond the, the United States. So, what is your hope for women in the years ahead? I think my hope for women in the years ahead is that we get closer to women actually being judged on their merit and their capabilities rather than based on their gender. And I mean, it sounds like, I mean, in a way, I'm kind of disappointed that I don't have a more <laughs> kind of bold hope. But I think if we achieve, if we manage to achieve that at some stage, then a whole lot of other accomplishments will come from it. So I think the biggest challenge that we have seen in supporting the women that we work with is, you know, how they're judged, whether they get elected, often is has very little to do with you know, how well they would do the job. And I think mm -hmm. um, we need to kind of address the kind of underlying gender stereotypes and kind of norms that we have in a way that would uh, enable women to be judged on their merits. Um, and I think in a way the, I mean, it's very difficult obviously to find any silver lining in the COVID crisis, but yeah. if there is one for uh, women, women leaders in particular, it's the fact that there have been some of those conversations about, you know, why is it that some of the women run countries have actually fared better during COVID? What is it about exactly. either their leadership style or the fact that actually the few women who've made it to the top have had to be so, so much better than all their competitors that, you know, those that make it have actually, you know, done a, a really good job of kind of leading their countries through this crisis. So I think if there's any kind of silver lining that helps us get closer to that goal, it's that some of those conversations are happening and people are recognizing that actually women's leadership brings something to the table that's really valuable. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's a, a good wish. And I I, I hope it materializes in, a, in the next few years. And my next question is my favorite question to ask guests uh, on, on The Brennan's Female. And it's uh, what do you wish women would do more of? And I, in your case, I'm especially interested in getting the answer. I think what I wish women would do more of is is advocating for themselves. And it's not to say, and I don't want that to sound as if I'm saying that women don't stand up for themselves because I think that they do. But I think both, you know, in the business and with our clients, you know, men kind of go for things that they think that they're only 50% 
qualified for. And women will kind of, you know, wait and see. And particularly in politics, you know, they get into politics later because they think, well, I'm not quite there yet. You know, I'm not quite as qualified as that person. I'm not quite ready to do it. And Mm -hmm. I think if women just kind of, it's it's certainly not going to solve the problem. But I think women could do more of like being a bit more impatient and advocating themselves and putting themselves out there, even if they know they don't tick all the boxes yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've certainly been kind of guilty of that myself in my own career. And I've seen, you know, as, as men, you know, colleagues of mine have advocated for their promotions or their yes. raises or their, mm-hmm. you know, being put on different projects. And I think, you know, I'm not alone as, as um, amongst the women that we've worked with who think, you know, well, I'll just do good work and I'll just kind yeah. of show myself and put myself out there and just like eventually, you know, it someone so, will be yeah, recognized. That mm-hmm. opportunity will happen. Someone will recognize me. And sometimes that happens and that's fantastic. And there are, you know, I think a lot of more men are kind of becoming allies and recognizing that. Yeah. Um, but I think women, you know, I, I hesitate to put myself in the lean in camp. Um, Mm -hmm. but I do think that, um, that women can do more of kind of advocating for themselves, even when they know that they're not quite a hundred percent there. Yeah. It's fighting kind of that, you know, that imposter syndrome, that, that fear of, of not being good enough or experienced enough and, uh, which men seem to naturally just have. Right. And I think it's also, you know, it's something that's unfortunately in many contexts is kind of drilled into women as well, because, you know, you learn from an early age when you put your hand up too much or you kind of put yourself out there too much, then people say, oh, well, you're too pushy. You're too bossy. You shouldn't do that. And so it's it's not something that I think we at all would blame women for. It's something Mm -hmm. that's kind of internalized over years of being told, you know, don't do that. Just like play nice you know, play by the rules and you'll advance. And I think it's time for us to decide that that's not the way change is going to happen. Um, and I want to ask, so you've answered the question, what do you wish women would do more of? And what's on your personal list of goals? What's one thing that you want to do more of in the next 12 months, let's say? Um, I think, well, the, the big thing for me is that recently I brought on a COO, which for me has been a huge thing. And I think the organization is ready for it. And I'm really excited to kind of, you know, share that leadership with someone who's, you know, who also comes from a fantastic background, has a lot of experience, um, and gender equality as well. Um, and I'm, what I'm looking forward to doing in the next 12 months is being able to, kind of let go of some of the things that, you know, as a sole founder, I've kind of been doing on my own for three years and having, you know, a real partner in that journey. Um, And hopefully because of that, being able to just, you know, spend a little bit more time, you know, vegging out, frankly, and having, you know, (laughs) some weekend resting, kind of, you know, watching trashy TV. I mean, it's not the most glamorous of ambitions, but I think just the ability to, you know, have a partner on the leadership side so that I can have, you know, a couple of days to just switch off and not think about work, I think is Mm -hmm. my, is my ambition. Mm -hmm. Rest is important for for (laughs) productivity and, and for our overall 
you know, mental well-being and physical Definitely. well-being. So, well, I hope that gets accomplished uh, uh, for, for your sake. Um, thank you so much, Eva, for speaking to me today. Thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you and I'm a big fan of the podcast. So, thanks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, it makes a difference if you subscribe, uh, give us a review. Thank you to TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on a TD logo. I look forward to speaking to you in a week with a new guest on the show. Take care. Yeah.